Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this specialist series, Explore How to Plan an Expedition, a series created for the Royal Geographical Society. I'm Matt Pycroft, an expedition specialist, filmmaker and photographer, and I've been going on expeditions under various banners for 15 years. I also sit on the council of the RGS. Episode 9 focuses on health and safety. In it, I speak with Megan Hine, Waldo Etherington and Aldo Kane. We demystify the risk assessment process and go through in detail how to research and write one. We also discuss how to manage risk effectively in the field, medical preparation, emergency evacuation plans, and communications. It's not only an informative episode, but a pretty exciting one too. As Megan puts it, the whole thing needs to be reframed because it's actually really flipping cool. Finally, if you're looking for support with planning your own expedition or field research project, then head to rgs.org to begin the journey. Right, let's get started with episode nine of How to Plan an Expedition. Thanks very much for doing this with me. Um, I think it would be really useful to start at the start. And if you could introduce yourself and tell me who you are and what you do, please. I'm Megan Hine. I'm an expedition leader and TV safety specialist. So I've spent the past 20 years full-time managing um, small-scale expeditions through to huge expeditions um, with many different facets. Uh, And the past 15 years has been spent... uh, setting up and running the safety on some of the biggest adventure shows on TV. So a lot of experience, yeah. And next, Waldo, please can you introduce yourself? My name is Waldo Etherington. Um, Ostensibly, I'm a professional remote location expedition specialist. Uh, My main focus is climbing and rope safety. Um, And my heart and soul really lies in tree climbing rainforest expeditions. Yeah, so over the years, uh, I've gained a lot of experience on on various remote location expeditions for uh, scientific research expeditions, for uh, television and film, um, and for, with private clients. And now, Aldo, please, can you introduce yourself? My name is Aldo Kane. I was in the Royal Marines for 10 years, um, and then I was offshore oil and gas in the rope access world for uh, about five years in total, but that's where I did a lot of... Um, boring health and safety risk assessment type uh qualifications in is where i kind of got my hand in with the sort of risk side of things um and then uh, and then i got into working in tv and film probably about uh 13 years ago um and i've been traveling around the world ever since on expeditions what is a risk assessment so essentially a risk assessment is a document that um gives an overview of the activities you're doing um, and it identifies the risks and the hazards associated with those those activities. Um, and then it kind of rates each activity um, with regards to how risky it is and then it gives you a box to tick <laughs> that essentially says what you're doing to mitigate those risks. And then it has uh, another column, which is the the residual risk. Once you've done everything you can to mitigate the risk, how risky is that still? Is it a really high risk still or is it now a low risk as you've put things in place? Um, So, yeah, essentially it identifies the risks and it assesses the risks and what you're doing um, and, and what you're doing about it. And I like having multiple risk assessments to be honest i like having a risk assessment that is the overarching risk assessment that covers the entire expedition 
Um, and that will cover things like transport, um, climate, uh, the equipment you're using, um, you know, very generalist risk assessment. Um, and then within that, I, if I'm doing something that I feel requires its own risk, risk assessment, for example, you might be doing an expedition uh, to Kyrgyzstan with some clients and traveling around, and then you might at some point be abseiling a giant cliff. And that abseiling the giant cliff, in my view, would you know warrant its very own sort of rope-specific risk assessment, which should go into even more detail um, with regards to the location specifics um, and you know what you're likely to find on those that twenty square meters of rock that you're going to be rigging the ropes on. Um, so yeah, essentially, it's a, it's a document, a health and safety document. Um, but if it's written in the right way, uh, then it can be very digestible and very, very useful. Um, and within my risk assessment, I would also state that pre-briefs are mandatory. So before you go into the field or before you do a certain activity, you want somebody who's a specialist in that or, or leading the health and safety just to kind of present that information to the people that are going to be doing it and just make sure everyone's heads are in gear and everyone's switched on regarding the risks. But actually, it offers you an opportunity to sit down with your team, maybe. If you're on a smaller expedition, young people going out themselves and say, well, how are we going to cross the river? What might go wrong? What if it's in spate? What if one of us slips? What if our bags are really heavy? Exactly. And I think that mental exercise of just going through the scenarios before they happen um, is incredibly useful because um, things also might come up that you haven't thought of because you're mentally putting yourself in that position. And suddenly you're like, oh, hang on a minute, how are we going to keep this dry? Or what happens if this is too deep for, you know, whatever it might be. I think that process of, of going through it in your head mentally is something that the risk assessment gives you. Um, and like you said, it is, is, is kind of like a game that you're playing. You're, you're working out what to do at each stage and and how to do it um, and sort of and, and working out how to manage the risk effectively. And, and also it means if you're comfortable with the plan, if you've got your head around the different aspects and the, and the, the complexities of what you're going to do, um, if you've really digested that, then it means when you're doing the activity, you're not questioning things or, or you, you can be totally in the moment and, and confident that you understand what's happening and what you should be doing and everybody else does in the team and it just it makes it more fun because everybody can you know enjoy it more and not be questioning and thinking and trying to work things out on the fly because most of that's been done already um so it allows people to really kind of focus and be more present which essentially i guess makes things safer <laughs> um so the risk assessment is not saying that everything's going to be a known quantity. It's just, you know, it's due diligence. It's doing your best to make sure that you're not going to be negligent and, and you know, walk into something that is totally avoidable. So a hazard causes the harm and the risk is how likely it is to do so. Why are they important? And I think probably essentially to this conversation, outside of a box ticking insurance exercise, what are they for? What are we trying to achieve by creating a risk assessment? In the world of scientific research, um, exploration or expeditions, um, health and safety is like the starting point where you build everything else out from. 
ultimately it's it's the stuff that you hang almost everything else off on because ultimately if something is unsafe the expedition doesn't really go ahead when you're on a scientific mission or um, a fact-finding mission or you're part of an organization then there's a duty of care and that duty of care ultimately is to preserve life and prevent injury um so the risk assessment is like a key part of risk management um so whether you're actually writing this down or not, um, anybody, well, most people going on a trip uh, will be automatically assessing the risk. Um, but I mean, uh, I suppose like the actual, the formal thing of a risk assessment is that it's a formal process of like identifying hazards. Um, and then you're evaluating and analyzing that basically with the idea to minimize well, to either eliminate the hazard or to be able to control it um, so that it doesn't lead to somebody losing their life or having a nasty accident. Um, anybody going off on an expedition is going to be doing this to some extent or not um, and actually formalising it into actually writing down what the risks are, what the chances of that happening and if it happens, how severe is it going to be and then what are you going to do to either eliminate it or to minimize the chance of it happening or it affecting you? Um, so it's, it's actually not that complicated a process. We've just made it into one or made it sound like one, whereas it's not really. And it's, those are things that you're going to be doing. No, and I think it's great that you point out that sometimes it's not written down, that whole idea of a dynamic risk assessment. You know, suddenly there's a river crossing that you weren't expecting. We are, by the nature of what it is, doing a risk assessment. What's the chance of something going wrong and how do we mitigate that chance? And then are we going to do it or not based on the assessment? Yeah, definitely. A dynamic risk assessment is something that you're going to be doing all the time, whether you're out in the mountains of Snowdonia or whether you're in the Amazon jungle. As you're going along, you're constantly assessing the risk around you as to like the impact that it could have on you um, and how you minimize that. So, you know, if it's raining, you're going to put on a waterproof jacket and that's minimizing the risk <laughs> or the hazard. Um, of like hypothermia. So you're constantly doing these things all the time. Um, so that's dynamic risk assessing. Often I can't, you know, if it's raining or if you're out and about, you don't have the time to sort of write that down. So often I'll just make a short video um, and I'll talk about what it is we're doing, how the plans have changed and what we're doing to to mitigate those risks. Um, I'll identify the risks in that, in that video and then I'll talk about what we're doing to, to mitigate those risks. And that little video um, can then be a saved as a file and appended to the to all the risk assessment and health and safety documents at a later date. I think it's fair to say, and you might disagree, that that health and safety label and even an element of expedition management is one of the kind of least celebrated and loved parts of an expedition from an outsider's perspective. That's not my experience. It might not be yours. But is that the case? And why is it so important? I think this, this is a really good way to frame it of that kind of least celebrated and loved and I think that that's people will say that if they've never experienced anything go wrong. <laughs> and, you know, as, as you know, you know, when things go wrong on expedition, they tend to snowball and it all happens very, very fast. And suddenly people's lives are in danger and you're then fighting fires and desperately trying to get that thing back underneath, under control. Um, so kind of, I suppose anybody who's kind of saying that it's not an important part of expedition planning has obviously never actually put themselves into, into a, an exciting situation and they will learn very, very quickly. <laughs> um, but on the, you know, on the flip side, it's, we also need to reframe that because it's actually, for sure, when I first started, 
like I didn't particularly enjoy like writing risk assessments and and all of that. I more because I find it very hard to sit still and focus sat behind my laptop. Uh, but I think we really need to reframe uh, how we perceive uh, like risk management. I think people find health and safety a bit boring and uh, not focused on it. Whereas it's such an integral safety is such an integral part of the expedition planning process. Um, and for me, it's the only part of the expedition that I know I have control over. It's like building that safety net before an expedition or before I deploy people uh, on the ground or deploy myself. Uh, that I'm setting up building a safety net beneath me, so that once I know, once I'm on film set or once I'm on expedition, things don't always go to plan, and there's always some net to be able to fall back into to catch you. Do you think that it gets a bad press? The words health and safety, risk management. Oh, for sure, for sure. I think people hear the words health and safety, and they immediately associate it with sort of dry, boring, lengthy documents that you're not going to read, uh, things that you're never going to use because nothing that bad is going to happen. You know, time and time again, I do come across documents, very important, like risk assessments, methodologies that are written and presented in a format that isn't very digestible. Um, you don't pick up those documents and sort of, it's, it's not an easy thing to read. Um, and I think that's a mistake a lot of people presenting these documents make. I think the whole point of this is to Get all the information you need in that document, but then think about the layout, think about the presentation of it, um, and put yourself in the shoes of someone that's going to pick up this document and start reading it and make it readable, digestible, so that this information is actually going to be listened to and used. So how much of this is a box-ticking exercise for insurance purposes versus an actual plan for incident prevention or management on the ground? Yeah, I think that the two are very links. I think it's... Um, with expeditions, it's, it's, it can be really dry and really boring going through insurance documents and working out, you know, the methodology of exactly how you're going to do something. In my line of work, I do a lot of rigging um, and I try to work to the standards that we have in, in the UK because they're very high standards. Um, so there's something called an ICOP, which is the International Code of Practice. Um, and that's something that the Industrial Rope Access Trade Association, IRATA, which is essentially about climbing in industry. So it's a very safe, standardized industry approach to rope access. Um, and that's generally considered the gold standard of working at height. Um, so I will go through the ICOP, I'll go through their documentation, I'll work out exactly like what it is that they're saying is the best practice. And then I'll try and make my systems as in line as that as possible whilst also being lightweight and more relevant to expeditions. Um, and I think essentially what that does, it does two things. First of all, it means if something does happen, I have ticked all the boxes and there's a, a paper trail um, that I can, I can fall back on and say, well, we did this because, and, and there's a logical uh, chain of uh, decision-making behind me. But more than that, it also, it's, it's got a real life uh, consequence and um, it has an effect on, on what we're doing and how we're doing it. We, we want to be working to a very safe standard. And how do you do it? That is how you do it. All of that dry box ticking exercise, reading those documents, essentially is telling you what the best practice is. Um, and you want to stay in line with that. And I think with with all of these things, it can be framed as a box ticking exercise. Oh, we've just got to do this because, you know, in case someone checks their homework, blah, blah, blah. 
But in reality, you want to have all of those procedures and that methodology and those working practices in place and you want to be doing it in the right way. Um, and so, yeah, I think, yes, it's a box ticking exercise, but that doesn't mean that it's not also very important to take note of what boxes you have ticked and why you're doing what you're doing. I would suspect that lots of people who are listening to this that are considering planning an expedition who maybe haven't before or have only done one or two, um, they're looking at doing things in smaller teams or by themselves. How much of this do you think is still relevant to those smaller teams, particularly with what we're going, going to go on to talk about? It's exactly the same. The risk is remains the same whether you're a small scale, whether you're going independently on your own, whether you're a small scale expedition going off to do research in the jungle on some animal species uh, versus you know this larger scale shoot that I've got happening in the jungle. The risk doesn't change. <laughs> you know you're still just like dealing with the same environmental hazards, the same hazards from people that live there uh, and you know, wildlife that might be in those areas. So you know, research is absolutely key before going out and all the different methods that you can find talking to local peoples. They're my best source of information is to talk to indigenous peoples or local peoples that are out on the ground who live there and who know what the weather's been doing, the conditions are like, you know, what like things might be in fruit, like plant-wise and stuff. So it's like you're building up this picture before you go. So how do you do that research specifically? What do you need to work out and how do you do it? Preparation is actually what gets you um, nine-tenths of the way there. Don't go to Greenland and then fly out, get dropped off by helicopter, and then take the, your tent out your bag for the first time ever and all the plastic bits are still there and pegs are like stuck together with elastic bands and you've never put it up and you don't know how to. You know, all these basic things, um, the old adage, if you, um, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail, is actually true. And that all starts with sitting down. First of all, sit down with a map, get excited, get curious. That's what drives all of these things. The curiosity builds passion, the passion for that trip, that thing, that place, that person, that um, place in time. And then that passion drives purpose. And now we sit down with a pen and paper and we write a risk assessment. What are all the hazards? We then come up with a med plan. Med plan links in with the risk assessment. Um, and then we came up with a comms plan. Comms plan also feeds into the risk assessment. So essentially what I would say is take action, start doing your risk assessment, do your comms plan, do your med plan, put them all together, cascade it down, work out what kit you need, where you need to be, you know, and, and get out of your head that it's, it's a boring thing doing a risk assessment. But when it comes to expeditions, we want to stay in a go mode for two months doing some of the coolest things on the planet. We don't want to get there and get incapacitated in a, a car accident on the way out of the airport to the cool thing. Uh, so it depends depends where I'm heading off to. So for this for this shoot that I'm setting up at the moment, uh, I've got a team that are actually going to be out on the ground before I get there. Um, so what I need to do is assess the in-country medical structure um, and I know that there's a local clinic nearby. So I'm like talking to the clinic, decide, like figuring out what they've got there, uh, how, what's their capacity, like what can they treat there? And if they can't treat it there, am I going to casi back somebody out? How am I going to get them out to somewhere where there is a, a bigger hospital? Um, so looking at those things, where we're going to be, there's quite a high risk of the fair lance snake, which is um, a highly toxic 
snake and and it, it can be deadly if not treated bites are not treated straight away so it's things like looking at the anti-venom and do we have it in country and because we're quite a large crew then making sure that we've got it stored in the local hospital make sure the medical staff there are ready and they're the right they've got the right skills to be able to deal with what we might need um so there's lots of different kind of layers uh, that i'm i'm looking at but these are the same things that you should be looking at if it's just you or a small team going out. It's like, if you have an accident, how are you going to get yourselves out of there? Uh, what medical facilities are available? Uh, your escape routes as well is really important. And all of these things are the things that you're putting into place before you even get out on the ground, because you know then that when things go wrong, you've got this plan to fall back into. I mean, I'm very conscious that a conversation like this is, you know, for some people potentially inspiring and motivating, and for others potentially off-putting. You know, it's such a big field, it's such a big subject, the consequences are so high, but it's neither of our intentions, right? Yeah, just keep it simple. I mean, I know all of this stuff is really complex, but the way you look at it, just think practically about it. Look at it, actually look at it, you know. I'll use a metaphor of... um tree assessment okay so i climb a lot of trees and often a large part of my job is looking at that tree and saying whether or not it's safe now there's a vast array of stuff you can learn about tree health and disease or tree biology or tree mechanics and the body language of trees and you know books and books and books and you could do years of diplomas and phds on on understanding about this stuff yeah but essentially what you do is you look at a tree and you ask yourself, is that tree safe? So I'm going to start at the bottom and I'm going to look like, is the, does it look right? Is the tree standing flat or is the root ball like heaved to one side? Are there huge cracks or cavities underneath it? Or is it, does it look like a normal base of a tree? And then as you follow that trunk up, you're looking for cavities or dead wood or dead branches. But basically, you know what a healthy tree looks like. Everybody does. And you're just using your eyes to look at that. And if you see anything that you're unsure about, you don't have to know what it is, but you just have to go, oh, that looks a bit funky and make a note of it. And then you can, you know, you can come back and you can revisit that and you can look into it and you can do some research. But it's the same process for planning an expedition. It's just think practically about it and just start at the beginning and work your way through it. And if you come up to anything that you're unsure about or you don't know, and you think it's important, don't just push it to one side or skim over the top of it. Just just make a note of it and come back to it and, and do the deep dive on those those pieces that you're unsure about. Um, an incredibly exciting and fun process. Um, and the reason I love doing adventures and the reason I love doing expeditions is because there are so many unknowns and it's not a straightforward thing to do. Um, and that's, for me, part of what makes it very enjoyable. So... When it comes to destination knowledge, how important is it and how do you do it? Uh, very, very important. Um, I would start online. Um, so I'd start with websites like the World Health Organization and just sort of a general skim online, work out what's happening in that country, um, you know, conflict zones, um, health issues, malaria uh, risk. Um, so I'd use the internet um, and I'd just deep dive into that area and try and work out what's happening currently. Um, and within that, you're going you're gonna to learn a lot, you know, what language is spoken, what's the climate like at what time of year. And there's a lot you're going to find out. Um, and also that 
that could be bolted onto a, to a recce, essentially. Um, either speaking to somebody that's been there, preferably recently, or even having a team go there and conduct a recce, just not doing what you want to do, but just sort of check out the area and, and get some boots on the ground, as it were. Um, but that initial research is absolutely fundamental. Um, the first thing I do is go on to like the FCO website and look at the country profile, first of all. Um, that's a really good way of understanding what the situation is because in Guatemala, it's very different to Afghanistan as it is to um, somewhere in, in Jakarta or you know somewhere over that neck of the woods. So you need to kind of understand. I like to, before I go, read something from the FCO and then just do a bit of a, uh, a sweep on the news, what's happening, other elections going on. Um, has there been any military coups? Um, are they in conflict with any of the people? Are there any border zones that are in conflict? Um, any underlying undercurrents, religion, race, creed? Am I going to somewhere where my religion or views and beliefs are, um, are not the same? Yeah, and I'm assuming from what you're saying that obviously it's great to have the opportunity to go out in advance and do some ground research, but realistically for a smaller team it sounds like lots of this is possible to do remotely via the internet oh absolutely yeah i mean we're so connected now and so even for this bit although i've been out there on a scout already and i've, I've worked that i've filmed out there in that area before uh most of the research now i'm doing now is online or is talking to my local team and country and you know, obviously i'm on a, a quite a high budget shoot so we've got the resources to be able to hire local people to help us but if you're going out for yourself and the budgets are quite small, then contacting local tour agencies, local guides is a great way to kind of start getting information and kind of building up the picture of what it's really like there, what the conditions are like, what the hazards and the risk might be. And then then you can start putting into plan a way of mitigating that. So either eliminating the risk or getting it to a point where it's controllable. But it's so exciting as well. It's like a puzzle. And it's like you lay it out in front of you and then you start filling those like those bits in. It's like, this is why I think actually it all needs to be reframed because it's actually really fun. And so how important is it to consider using a fixer or a local guide, somebody who is of that place and understands it? I think using local knowledge and local guides is, yeah, critically important to most expeditions. There may be expeditions where you don't necessarily need to rely on a guide to do what you need to do. Um, but in most cases, especially in rainforests, um, I'd say it's, it's critically important to have a local guide, that local knowledge. Um, my experience in rainforests specifically, they are just so much more tuned into the forest around you. What then happens once you're there? Is health and safety done? You've signed your paperwork, it's over. No. <laughs> um so yeah, ostensibly there's a there's a lot of groundwork to do before you start an expedition. Um, and once you've started the expedition, you need to keep track of that groundwork that you've done. Um, you need to keep just checking in with yourself or, or the whoever's in charge of, of health and safety and ensuring that you are operating um, within the parameters of, of what you said you were going to do at the start. Um, it's very easy in a team to be kind of sucked into the activity. Um, everybody becomes like very, very focused in the task at hand because it's exciting or dangerous or uh, complex. Whatever the reasons are, things can just draw people's attention in and narrow that field of vision. And unless there's an individual or, or a team of people with that broader perspective of what's going on at all times, 
um, then it's very easy for people just to totally lose track of, you know, what they're doing and if it's safe or not. I mean, that also takes us on to the BS um, 8848, is it? The... Uh, which is essentially it's a benchmark of best practice for for operating on voyages outside of the UK, um, so expeditions. And within those documents, you get a really nice um, a sort of overview of of what you should be doing um, and to what standard. Um, and it also gives someone on the other the other side of health and safety, so someone that's taking part in an expedition. More importantly, it gives those people. Um, an idea of what questions to ask um, and and how to kind of manage their own health and safety and take responsibility for that and check whether people they're working with or employing are operating to a standard that's acceptable. Most of the accidents that I've seen that have been either close to life-ending or life-ending haven't been doing the serious stuff like abseiling down Angel Falls or cave diving in Tulum or diving with great whites outside of, of a cage, like it's not that. The way most people die on expeditions is getting in a car, three, four people from the airport, they haven't checked, there's no seat belts. the driver's drunk, driving at night with the lights off, um, and you end up in a smash, you end up in an RTC. That happens more than like I care to, to remember. So for me personally and for the, the jobs that I'm on, there's just a blanket, no travel, um, with, with no seatbelts. So medical preparation. So what are you looking to do in those early stages? You know, early expedition, who's on the team? What do you need to know from a medical perspective? So from the medical, pers- medical side, it's uh, what skills do you have already within your team? Um, do you have or do you already have a medic? You know, maybe one of the participants is a doctor or a paramedic. Um, that's coming along. If not, then I would definitely recommend going and doing some sort of wilderness first aid course. Um, I'd be looking into what the hazards are. So if you're going off to the jungle, like I've just been talking about, what are the issues with like, um, are there deadly snakes? Like what are the insect risks? And you can go on to um, the, you know, the, the government websites and check like what the government and are saying at the moment is high risk. So is there a malaria risk, dengue fever, yellow fever, you know, what uh, bugs and things, nasties uh, in those areas that you're going to? And do you need to take prophylaxis? So do you need to take anti-malarials with you? Um, and then building your first aid kit around the things that you might come into contact out there. Um, there are, there's the with that, it's like then taking, making sure that unless you're going to China, that you've got some sort of like satellite communications device with the outside world. I think it's quite irresponsible now to be going off into these environments without taking it when they are accessible uh, and affordable and they are readily available. Um, and you could, there's also, there's companies online that can offer remote medical assistance as well. So if you have an accident, a doctor will come online and they'll talk you through the scenario that you're facing as well. So if you don't have that medic in the team, then it's maybe worth having a look at building that in as well. And I think when it comes to first aid, you can never get enough practice in because when it, you know, when something happens, it can be quite overwhelming to deal with. So the more practice you have of like reminding yourself how to do CPR or you know respiratory stuff is like it's really important. Yeah, the medical aspect of expeditions is 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 really interesting and is vast. This is an absolutely vast, vast subject. Um, for 
sort of self-planned, self-run expeditions, I think initially, yeah. Um, finding out past medical history um, and any ongoing medical conditions that the team might have. Um, you know, are they insulin dependent? Um, does anyone have any allergies? Um, has anyone got like a bad knee or a bad back or any of that kind of stuff? You, you want to do the groundwork and just make sure that everybody's um, been very forthcoming with, with their own needs. Um, and you want to take note of that and ensure that you've got um, any medicine um, or uh, bits of kit that those individuals are going to need and having redundancy for that. So, you know, if someone's on a specific type of medication and it's really important that they take that medication, um, have some spare medication, <laughs> somewhere else in a different bag. Um, you know, those little things um, are really, really important. Um, and then with regards to, you know, what medical kit to take, um, a large part of that depends on the the medical sort of capability of of the team. Um, are they trained up? Uh, do they know how to use the equipment that you're taking? Um, do you have access to telemedicine service? Is there somebody you can call up that will tell you what drugs you need to take for specific illnesses? Um, which is a very, very useful service. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a constant, it's, a, it's something that's never the same for any expedition. Every expedition I do, I would love just to have a medical bag that I pick up in a dry bag and pop it in my rucksack and that's sorted. But unfortunately, it's days of unpacking and packing and refaffing and checking all the medical kits right and in date and where it is and are the Ziploc bags still waterproof or the dry bags still waterproof and it's an endless amount of work to do. So with med stuff, you plan for the worst and you expect and hope for the best. Um, you need to have your med kit um, and your extraction kit, for example, uh, that's suitable for the amount of people that you have on the expedition. So a two-person expedition has a very different med kit to a 15-person um, expedition. Um, what we also need to think about is the environment. Um, a med kit in Greenland is very different to um, a med kit in Venezuela or a med kit in the bush in Australia. So the environment dictates what med kit you take. Um, the amount of people on your expedition dictates what kit you should take. The training of the people on your team will dictate what medicine and meds you should take. If nobody's trained in using sharps and giving injections, then there's little point in you taking um, intramuscular or intravenous paracetamol. So you can you need to know how to use everything in your med bag. But what I would say is the basics with med stuff is is like if you're traveling, make sure you're traveling with the med bag in a car. Like you don't whack all your kit into a baggage wagon that goes off, and then you're following up an hour later and you have a smash and there's no med kit. Um, so things like that are always worth what for me personally, when I'm on a trip, I'm like, this is my personal kit. It's my whole bag. And that is a med bag. Like I want to know where that is because rarely happens. But when it does happen, you just wish that everything was that much closer and you had so much more time. So, um, I, I guess what I would suggest for everyone is to do a, a sort of far from hell or a wilderness medicine course. Um, because when something does go wrong, um, it, you know, it can affect you for the rest of your life. What do you think about, you know, understanding what's in your first aid kit, knowing how to use it and really knowing what's there and having fleshed it out for yourself? 
I can't stress enough, like going through your first aid kit. And yeah, sure, you can buy first aid kits off the shelf. Um, but if you're going to exciting environments, have a look at what's in that first aid kit and then uh, tailor it to that environment. And then just, I think it might be really useful to quickly um, overview the kind of medical training that is available. Because obviously, as you're saying, wilderness first aid is useful, but what's beyond that that's realistic and sensible? Yeah, I'd say doing medical courses, wilderness medical courses are really, really useful. Um, I'd say, I'd go far as saying essential for somebody on the team just to have that that knowledge. Um, and fundamentally, I think you've got your your trauma response. So what to do in the event of of like, catastrophic bleeding or allergic reactions or a really badly broken ankle, um, things like that. And then there's the more in-depth um, knowledge of what medicines to take, um, how to take the stats of somebody, someone's blood pressure, heart rate, respiration rate, um, you know, and and use that to, to monitor patients in the field. Um, but it's, again, it's a vast vast subject um on major expeditions i like having a paramedic or doctor on the team somebody that's medically trained experienced and equipped to deal with a large variety of of, of, um of events um but if it's a small team i'd say at the very least do a decent medical course um that's centered around working in remote locations um and then take a, a trauma kit with you at the very least. Yeah, I, mean, I think for, for the average person, it's, like it's, it's having the time available as well. So the, the medical uh, qualifications that I hold is like a seven-day course, um, which isn't really that realistic for a lot of people um, and don't necessarily need to be operating at that sort of level. So two, three-day course um the sort of, i'm based in snowdonia like the mountain center near me uh plaza brennan runs uh sort of wilderness first aid courses there's a um the Wemsey course up in scotland i think they only run a couple of times a year uh, but that's a, that's a brilliant one and then before we go into the next step i think it's good to talk through you know emergency evacuation plans you probably have a different term for them that's more formal but um what are they and how do you write one? What do they involve and what are they for? Um, so the like an emergency evacuation plan um, is basically a set of procedures that um, facilitates uh, safe evacuation um, when something goes wrong. Um, so you know, for somebody who's in it, like working in a remote area or an expedition that's you know, maybe encountered landslides or floods or so in some sort of environmental issue. Um, it's like, well, how are you going to evacuate yourself? Like, what are the things that you've put into place? How can you get yourselves out uh, on your own independently? Uh, are there other exit strategies? Are there other routes that you can get off that mountain or out of that jungle? Um, or is it escalated to the point where you need a helicopter extraction or uh external help, mountain rescue, uh, search and rescue, um, who, like what team is it that's required, which is why even small-scale expeditions, it's worth knowing how, like if something goes wrong, how are you going to extract yourself? Um, if you're remote in the jungle, it, are there helicopters in country that can come and rescue you? If you're out there, do they have winch capacity? Because if you're deep in the jungle, um, a lot of helicopters in in these areas don't actually have winches so you know how are they going to land how are they going to get you out 
uh, where can you get to that where a helicopter might be able to come in and land? The hel- a lot of helicopters don't have night capacity to be able to fly. They're, they're not equipped with lights and search stuff, so they're not actually allowed to fly at night. So thinking those things through, it's like, okay, well, you may have to stabilize somebody for 24 hours, and how are you going to do that? But all this sounds quite scary, <laughs> but this is exactly why you work through all this before because you don't want to be in that situation and not have any of this stuff in place. Whereas actually, if it's all in place, you press the button and you know, hopefully somebody comes and helps you. A lot of research needs to go into that. Um, you need to work out you know, what hospitals are available to you, how far away they are, and, and what, how good they are, essentially. Um, so we'll often grade hospitals. Um, we'll have like, a, you know, we basically work out what facilities they've got. Do they have scanners? Do they have a 24-7 um, like emergency department? Um, do they have oxygen and ventilators? Um, all of these questions that you can kind of build an idea of, you know, is this a fully functioning hospital where you can take someone with a really severe brain injury and they'll, they'll sort it out? Or is it a clinic that's got some dirty bandages in a drawer on the side of a dirt road? Um, because obviously there's a difference. Um, so first of all, it's doing the groundwork, working out what hospital would be suitable for what injury. Um, and then it's working out how to transport someone there. Is it on foot? Is it using a vehicle? Um, is it with a helicopter um, or maybe a fixed wing aircraft? And then it's assessing those assets. So is the vehicle serviceable? Does it have fuel in the tank? Does it have a driver? Where is it positioned? How do you get hold of them? Um, and then when you've written your emergency procedure, just just go through it, mentally putting yourself in that position and then working out would it actually, would it actually work. Um, and then what you essentially want to be working towards is a final document that can go in the hands of the people on the ground that is uh, decluttered and very, very simple, um, which would be, okay, something's happened we need to get this patient out of here into a hospital and that's where you pull out this little cheat sheet this emergency procedure and it will tell you first of all who to call um so you'd get your sat phone or your messaging device or your comms or whatever it is and you would call a specific person and then it would have a backup number for that person um maybe even three or four different numbers you can call but in order of, of what you should call them and if you get through to the first person all good um and then it'll have information on on timings, um, so you're kind of aware of what's going to happen and how. Um, but ultimately, you want to be working towards a really simplified document that's very, very clear and very easy to understand that can be implemented effectively on the ground. So one of the things that you've, you've mentioned a few times, which is obviously um, paramount to all of this and has changed hugely within the last 100 years, is comms. Um, why are comms important? What should you be carrying? And are they a formal established part of any decent plan? Yes, I would say. I, mean, I still talk to people who are like, uh, you know, say that they don't want to carry comms devices with them um, because they feel it takes away from the expedition uh, and things. But I suppose my argument to them is that if you have an accident or something happens, how on earth are you going to be found? And you're actually putting other people's lives at risk um, by not doing that and not carrying those uh, communications devices. And if you're a leader or responsible for setting up a a trip, um, you have a duty of care 
to your clients or to the people who are less experienced than you um, to provide that level of safety. Um, and you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have somebody there within 20 minutes to help you. You may still have to manage it for the next 24 hours, but at least you know that you've got contact with the outside world and people know where you are. Um, and there's different levels. So uh, I always carry at least two methods of communication. Um, so I usually have a satellite phone with me. Um, they don't always work in jungle canopies, under jungle canopies <laughs> and uh, or gorges where they can't get the a signal um, and I carry often carry like a Garmin inReach um, I've got like a mini one which is super tiny and it links up with my phone and I can see maps and stuff um, and that's brilliant like I've had that all over the world in quite deep jungles and and I've never ever had an issue with communication with it I think the other one is just to talk about you know when we think about comms often it's us being able to make a call but actually that whole rescue element of like a PLB or whatever term we want to use, you know, talking us through, if you could, what's on an inReach that allows you to also be helped, essentially? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good point. It's like, so um, a PLB or personal locator beacon, um, typically are only one way. Um, so, you know, there was the, like the old EPIRBs and things that if you fell into water, they'd you'd typically have it on a survival suit. If you fell into water, they'd be triggered by the water and they'd be sending a signal um, and you can still get their they're not too expensive, which is why people often carry them over two-way communications. Is that they you can press a button and it's, it show it flashes to show that it's sending a signal. But because the rescue team can't communicate with you, you don't actually know if it's if it's really sending or if there's a fault with it. Um, whereas with something like a, a Garmin inReach, and there are other um, devices on the market as well. Uh, is that that is a two-way communication. So although you can't call with a Garmin inReach, you can text and somebody can text you back as well um, to let you know that that they've received your message. Um, and it's quite nice, you know, check in with friends or <laughs> like, uh, and it's quite cool for like family and stuff to see as well because when you send your message, it has like a little link to a map so that it opens up and it's like they can show all their friends like where you are and stuff, which is cool. Mum's like that. I think it, one thing I'd like to add on this, and you can you know, disagree or add to it, is outside of the medical side, I think something like an inReach, and as you say, other devices are available. Um, it, they're incredibly useful from an expedition perspective in general. I mean, this year I was in a tent in Iceland. I had a piece of tech that wasn't working, so I sent a message back to somebody technical, and an hour later my tech was working. You know, the world of expeditions has changed in terms of comms and how useful they are to an expedition. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I, you know, as I said, I think you've it's irresponsible now um, to not take take it. And prices are slowly coming down as well. But definitely look for that two way communications. Uh, and I've I've used my inReach because um, it has like a map where it brings up a map on your phone. Uh, I've actually had to use my inReach a couple of times for navigation because like my GPS unit's gone down. Yeah, and they, I mean we won't go into too much detail, but they track as well, and that that track can be sent. And yeah, they're they're brilliant. Um, and as you say, incredibly affordable in the grand scheme of things. It's like it's just worth checking um, the network. So, like whether it's like Iridium is what the InReach uses, and my so I've got Iridium like InReach, but I have an Inmarsat um, satellite phone. So I've got two different networks because they tend to work in different areas. So if you're going somewhere super remote, it's just worth having a look online and just checking the areas that those devices actually cover. 
because if you're in the polar regions as well, there's <laughs> not too much that works up there anyway, <laughs> but some work better than others. So it's well worth having a look at that and checking just because it would be really terrible to get in there and realize that you've got no signal. So, you know, to take the Garmin inReach, which is something that's fairly affordable for people going on this scale of trip, they've got an SOS button on the side. And I think, I don't know what your opinion of this stuff is, but I think the point I want to make, which you can agree with or disagree with, is that is not a fail-safe. It is not an adequate emergency evacuation plan. You know, that button will work if you've got an inReach subscription, but that doesn't mean, you know, Superman's going to fly in and save the day. Exactly. And often these beacons, they'll go to like, you know, the UK Coast Guard or something like that. And if you're in the other side of the world, there's going to be a, a lot of a lot of things that have to happen for the information of where you're at and what's happened to be in the, in the hands of the people that really matter. Um, and usually you'll find in remote locations, like it's all very well contacting um, like emergency departments, but ultimately there's probably an asset closer to home. Um, there's probably a, a local helicopter pilot or an aircraft or um, rangers that are going to be the people that ultimately are going to be coming to get you. Um, so trying to just cut all those links in the chain out and just being able to go directly to the people that are coming to get you um, is, is what you're kind of looking at, looking at doing. Um, and yeah, you, you want it to be effective. You don't want to be pressing a button and not having a clue who's getting notified of where you're at. No one knows what's happened or how time critical it is. Um, because you could be out there for a while. And, uh, I'd say a Garmin in reach is like what I'd probably recommend above everything else. They're absolutely incredible. Um, you can get like there's the, the 66 I is sort of a GPS device with a screen. So you can, you can track your, um, you can make tracks and uh, and create a GPX file of, of where you're going. Um, so you can use it for navigation. And also it allows you to send essentially a, a text message um, via satellite to uh, uh, someone's mobile phone, or you can send an email to someone's email address. Um, and it's satellite communications. And if you've got two inreaches, that's redundancy. Um, and that's a, a, a quite a robust system. Um, Admittedly, it is nice to have the ability to make a phone call because sometimes there's some details that you want to get across to um, a medical facility or the people that are coming to get you that might be very important. Um, but for a low, for a, for a cost-effective uh, operational comms plan, I'd say having a Garmin inReach is a, a very, very good starting point. Um, beyond that, to do this in order, I'd say you know. First of all, you've got uh, a runner, so somebody that can settle preferably with accompanied and just run on foot to go and get help. Um, and often that will be your first port of call, um, unless you're really, really, really remote. Um, then you've got mobile phones. Um, mobile phones are working in more and more locations around the world, um, for better or worse, but often you do have 4G in uh, in some pretty remarkably remote locations. Um, so it's worth checking that out. And often it's hard to know whether or not you're going to have reception unless someone has done a recce and they've tested that. Um, and now, you know, modern phones, the new iPhones have an SOS feature, um, which works via satellite. And I think a lot of rescues have been done um, successfully because people have used the SOS feature on their mobile phone. Um, and phones these days, they're just an incredible resource. Um, so that'd be my first port of call. Then you've got radios. Um, you've got UHF rate radios, um, which are ultra high frequency. 
Um, and then you've got VHF, very high frequency radios. Uh, the difference is UHF radios bounce the signal up off the ionosphere and back down again. So UHF radios are much better at communicating when there's like obstacles in the way, like a big hill or a mountain. A UHF radio will bounce the signal over that. VHF radios are generally more line of sight. Um, and they've both got their pros and cons. Um, and they'll both have their limitations, um, especially if you're in a rainforest with wet leaves everywhere. Wet leaves are like a nightmare for messing up like radio signals. <laughs> um, but yeah, that being said, if you've got some decent high power radios, they, they should work. Uh, in in with, with over over like relatively short distances. I think they're a, they're an underrated bit of kit as well. When we're speaking specifically to like doing work on expeditions, whether it's field research, you know, filmmaking, whatever it might be, actually being able to radio camp from a field research site and say, "Hey, could somebody bring that box down here? I need it." Totally, yeah. Or or someone crosses a river, gets to the other side, and they're waving their arms and shouting, and you can't hear what they're saying. Um, just having small portable radios are, you know, they're a really, really useful bit of kit. Um, and I've got some, you know, very expensive, very high power UHF radios that are used for expeditions, um, that are like fully submersible and really powerful and you need a license to operate them. Um, and then I've got some, they're basically toys, like little Motorola yellow things that are USB chargeable. Um, but they're, they're decent, you know, and if you're, you're on a mountain and you're talking, um, you know, within three kilometers of people, um, you can get a fairly, fairly reliable signal. Um, and yeah, a really, really valuable bit of kit. Um, and again, just having a think with all of this technology, having a think about how do you charge it? Do you need batteries for it or can you plug it into a, to a battery? So all of my kit where possible, I have it all charged via USB, um, and preferably the same USB cables. Um, and it means that you can bring a certain number of battery packs and a very small solar panel, and you can keep your comms kit, your head torches, your mobile phone, your your radios all charged up during an expedition, which is pretty nifty. So, yeah, radios, really good bit of kit. And then you've got the uh, the Garmin InReach, which you mentioned before. Um, and I think the Garmin, in, Garmin InReach is like my most praised bit of kit. Um, it... You can work it uh, by connecting it to your phone or you can get standalone devices with a screen for navigation and essentially it allows you to keep a detailed track of where you're going, how far you've been um, and be able to navigate. And it also allows you to send either an email or a text message to people's phone via satellite. So two of those devices and you've got a really effective comms plan. And then above that, you've got um, satellite phones, um, which generally require a subscription. Uh, they're quite expensive. Um, and they often don't work. Um, the same with Garmin inReaches or any of these bits of kit, often you'll have to like wander around a little bit, find a clearing, um, or just, yeah, test them out, make sure they work. Like, especially if you get to a base camp, comms check, check that everything works from there. Um, I've had multiple expeditions where we've got to a camp in a rainforest and I've pulled the sat phone out to, to give it a test and it just doesn't work and it doesn't work anywhere. <laughs> I've wanted like... 100 meters up the hill, 100 meters down, 100 meters east, 100 meters west, and it, and it still doesn't work. Um, so you've got a very fancy, expensive bit of kit that doesn't actually do anything, whereas the Garmin in reaches were getting messages out. Um, so yeah, it's worth just 
again, doing a bit of research into all of those those bits of kit. Um, plenty of resources online, um, but ultimately just a function test in the field. Check that these things work before you go and when you when you arrive. And I know it's incredibly specific and tailored for each trip, but when it comes to things like equipment and gear and kit, how do you ensure it's fit for purpose and fit for use and that you're carrying the right stuff? Yeah, so if it's somewhere that you've never been before, then again, talking to people in country, talking to people who've been out to those places before, ask them you know, what they took with them, what worked, what didn't work, um, and testing it before you go out is so important. So often I see on trips that, People have bought like a rucksack a few days before or classic on his boots, like a couple of days before getting on a flight. And I've done this myself as well. Um, and it's like, you've, you know, you've got your new boots because it's been like such a last minute thing that you've thought about. And then you rock up in country and realize that they don't really fit and you get blisters and it's just miserable. And yeah, it's not a very pleasant experience. So yeah, getting the kit, testing the kit out, knowing that it works in those environments. Um and things like if you're looking, if you're bringing like communications devices or GPS units, like if you're going to the the polar regions or operating in Arctic conditions, the battery life on those things is a matter of minutes. <laughs> and you know, suddenly you've got no communication with the outside world or you've got no navigation devices in. So really kind of thinking through all those different things about like how's this piece of equipment going to function in the environment I'm taking it to? And do I need to build something into that risk assessment, managing that risk. So physical fitness. Now, you know, people come in all different shapes and sizes and that's okay, you know, but how much does physical fitness matter? I recognize that it's expedition dependent, but is it a focus? Should it be considered? Um, how do you assess the team? Yeah, I think physical fitness is uh, is very important um, depending on what you're doing. Um, there might be some expeditions that are less physically demanding than others. Um, uh, and there might be some that really demand a quite a high level of, of physical fitness. Um, assessing it is very hard, um, and for me, this sort of this is in line with sort of competency as well. Um, you know, it's very common to to meet a guide or an outdoor professional um, who is actually not as competent as they may have seemed to be on paper. Um, and the same with with fitness. Um, you know. It can seem like somebody is very active and very strong, and um, when it comes to it, they're actually you know quite unstable on their feet. Or um, and it's just not to point any fingers, but just something to be aware of, you know. Um, and ideally, doing expeditions, it's really good to have um, either like a, a reference of the people you're you're going to be working with um, from someone that you trust saying, yeah, they're an absolute ninja, they're really solid, really strong, um, or um, meeting that person and getting to know them. Um, but I think fitness generally for all expeditions is important. And I think expeditions are a very good impetus for people to get strong and get fit and do some training. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I think if you're going on an expedition with somebody big or small, and let's focus on small for the purposes of this conversation, and you're going out to somewhere a bit more remote and the first time you ever see them in outdoor shoes is on that trip, you've probably made a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> you know, go and hike up a hill and have a chat and get to know them and you can slightly just work out how much they're huffing and puffing with no gear on walking 100 meters uphill. Exactly. Yeah, and it can be quite hard to get the measure of people, especially over sort of Zoom calls or online things. So yeah, if possible, meet 
the people, hang out with them, um, get to know them a little bit. Yeah, and as we say, it comes down to what you actually need to do. You know, if you're a vehicle overland-based expedition doing field research out the back of a you know, defender, then, well, it probably doesn't matter as much as it does when you're tracking for six weeks. Okay, cool. Let's move on to everyone's favorite subject after risk assessments, insurance. Um, so again, it's so specific to each trip, whether it's, you know, big TV, independent adventure, field research, they're all going to differ. But really, you know, what do you need as a bare minimum and how do you go about finding it? Yeah, it's, it's quite, when you've got kind of unique trips that are kind of a little bit different to your off-the-shelf experience of know, trekking or uh, sort of the adventure tour packages, um, it's definitely worth calling up insurance companies and having a conversation with them and laying out exactly what you're going to be doing there. Um, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that how does an insurance company consider work? Because if you're working versus a tourist, you have to have different insurance and a lot of travel insurances don't cover you to be working so it's worth checking with them even if they're in a research expedition whether they qualify that as working uh, or as a if you're there as a tourist uh, so i think anybody doing anything that's slightly unusual is worth calling up lots of different insurance companies getting quotes making sure that you're actually covered uh, for what you're doing there and that the kit and equipment is also covered as well so contingency planning, this is a loaded question. How often do expeditions go completely to plan? Never. <laughs> Have you ever been on an expedition that's been to plan? Not, I've not even been on an expedition that's come close <laughs> to <laughs> the plan. No, I've, I've never been. It's like life, isn't it? Like you can have every like intention of achieving something, but it's like, you know, the journey kind of knocks you off on a different path. Um, and yeah, I don't think I've ever... Yeah, I've achieved the goal of the expedition, but it's never gone exactly as planned to get to that goal. Yeah. So in that case then, you know, why is a plan important and what do you need to do to understand what could or couldn't happen and, and realistically make decent contingency plans? Yeah, so the contingency plan, this is basically tying together everything that we've already spoken about. Um, so it's like worst case scenario. Um you know, what could happen? And this is where I, I have fun with that because it's like, you know, what could happen? Like aliens could land. So I know, how are you going to sort that out? Um, but like this, you know, there's so many factors and so many elements to going to remote environments um, that, you know, you won't be able to think about, about them all. Um, and you won't be able to, I've certainly been in situations where, uh, you know, I've planned and mitigated for all the hazards I can think of. And then something totally left field come in and just been like, well, I wasn't expecting that, but I've still got my medical plan in place. I've still risk assessed it. I've still got my evacuation plan there ready to go. So although something completely unexpected has happened, I've still got that plan there, which I can still stick to. And it just takes a massive weight off because I know that, okay, I need to get my team out of here now. And it doesn't matter the scenario that's caused that. I know what the evacuation route is. And what, what are the main things you think people get wrong? Food can be a big one because um, that massively affects morale. And then I think, you know, medical evacuations, emergency procedures. Um, so, yeah, really, I'd say um, emergency action plans and food are two often underestimated components of an expedition. 
one of the rules I think we and everybody has is, you know, no heroes. If you've got a problem, tell us at the start of the problem. You know, I think there's a, there's a couple of lessons. One is don't be a hero. And the second is even the most experienced people in the world get it wrong sometimes. You know, being efficient, being a good practitioner, being a good member of a team is critical. But when it comes to health and safety, I think we've both probably had a lot of instances where actually we've been under immense pressure to do things that we know aren't safe. And, you know, we've both now arrived at this lovely place where we're willing to say no because the first rule is come home alive. I mean, I started doing expeditions when I was like 18, 19. Um, and shortly after that, working in sort of a health and safety role, um, and it was difficult when you're the youngest person on the team and occasionally you do have to say no. Um, and that decision wasn't easy back then. Um, and it's not an easy decision to make now if there's a lot on the line, you know, if there's a whole production company and a, and a shoot or a team of scientists that really have important work to do. Um, and a decision you're making is jeopardizing that. Um, but ultimately... I think it comes down to the fact that health and safety does trump everything. I say this to all the youngsters that we work with, like, kill your ego. I will respect you so much more for telling me you're struggling when we can solve the problem rather than waiting until something horrendous happens and we have to deal with it. Totally. Like, that's maturity for me. What advice would you give to somebody who's planning their first expedition from a management health and safety risk perspective? The RGS is an awesome resource and there's lots of people there that can help you. Um, the internet is a brilliant resource as well, but also I think just continue to foster this culture that to me seems very prevalent in the, the outdoor and adventure world of people helping each other. People are keen to give advice and to help you out um, because especially if you're enthusiastic and they uh, they can recognize that enthusiasm and that thirst for adventure in you, um, I think you'll be surprised with who is willing to help you. Um, and I think that's something to take note of as you move more into a career of, of expeditions or just, you know, doing more expeditions and gaining more experience, just continually try and foster that approach for other people. Be helpful, help people out, um, lend them equipment, give them advice, um, do what you can to help the next generation or just other people doing wild and fun things enjoy it i think <laughs> you know see like don't see it as overwhelming a lot of the stuff as we've said is like we're talking about here is massively overwhelming um but the chance of this happening is so slim um just start small write down what your idea is what you hope to achieve and then start looking at the steps and write it all down um at, like what you need to achieve that what how do you get to that place who do you need to be talking to to help you get there what might go wrong and what you need a kit and equipment wise and enjoy the process it's it's really fun and actually the more you go through that and you start realizing wow this is such an incredible place that i'm actually going to and you can you actually enjoy it a lot more when you're in country because it's like you know i know that like for this again go back to this panama thing it's like i know that in the caves that we're going into there's all these bats and there's actually a really rare bat species in there that unless i was going through the risk management process of it i would never know it was there and it's really flipping cool Thanks for listening. For more information on how to get started with planning your own expedition or field research project, head to rgs.org. This podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft, produced and edited by Laura Jaycock for Terra Incognita Publishing, and Shane Windsor and Laura Melville for the Royal Geographical Society. Thank you.